To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back in to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Coming to you from sunny Los Angeles, California, where the Lions of Liberty studios are located. I'm excited to be back in here. I'm excited to have you on the other end, wherever that may be, on your iPhone, your iPad, your MacBook. I, I'm just pimping Apple products now. I don't know why. Because they're delicious. But that's what I use. Whatever it is you're listening to us on, I'm glad you're here. Because without you guys, I wouldn't be here doing the show each and every week. And you know, the reason I started doing this show... Because you can't do anything else. It's because I think there are a lot of concepts out there, a lot of debates going on in the libertarian community, and there's a lot of forums for these debates, and they're all great, whether it's Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, you got the libertarian forums like Daily Paul. These are all places people are coming together and having these conversations. And there's some of these conversations that I really want to really delve into in a very concise way. And one of the debates we're always seeing is the idea of, you know, minarchy versus anarchy, of limited government versus no government. Most libertarians are at least at the point of saying we should have a very limited government. It should be very limited in scope. It should at least only be concerned with issues of individual rights, justice, protecting property, and that kind of thing. But then there are others who take it a step further and say, no, we don't even need this thing called government, this coercive organization, the way most people view government, to do this. The market can provide even institutions of justice, law and order. You know, And a prominently kind of pushed theory on this is something called anarcho-capitalism. It was first popularized by Murray Rothbard. And there are many prominent libertarians today that push this idea, this idea of a Society free of government with private property ownership and how that will deliver all the things that we want in society in a better way. And my guest today is a fairly prominent anarcho-capitalist. He is an economist, a consultant, as well as an author of several books, including the book Chaos Theory, which examines just how an anarcho-capitalist society would and could function in practice. He also has an entertaining and informative blog called Free Advice, which you can find over at consultingbyrpm.com. Robert Murphy, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Oh, thanks for joining me today, Professor Murphy. I call you Professor Murphy because I actually took one of your classes. Well, I've taken a few of your classes over at the Mises Academy online, and I took one on the subject we're going to discuss today, anarcho-capitalism, a couple years ago, and that's why I thought you'd be a good person to have on today to discuss this subject. And, you know, I want to kind of go over a lot of the common objections we hear, both from non-libertarians and within libertarian circles, about the concept of anarcho-capitalism. Before we get into that, maybe you can define this term for us, for people that might not be familiar with it. What exactly is anarcho-capitalism, and how did this become a subject that you wanted to investigate further? Well, sure. So the term anarcho-capitalism, I believe Murray Rothbard coined it, but I'm not certain about that. He certainly popularized it. And what it means is anarchy, right? So the absence of a political state, or what most people mean when they say the word government. But 
that it's also a capitalist system. And so that's obviously the term anarcho-capitalism. And the reason you need to have that second word in there is that there are a lot of self-described anarchists who don't believe in the state in its current conception, but they're communists. Okay, so a lot of people, they reject authority, and so they'll endorse a lot of standard anarchist complaints against the state as a hierarchical institution that is unfairly imposing its will on people and using force to back it up. But the what you might call anarcho-communists will say, oh, but private property is just another example of hierarchy where you know there's a, a one group of people, the property owners, against the other people, the people who don't have property, and so they're against that as well. So the term anarcho-capitalism is just more specific to be clear that we believe in a market economy, private property, ownership of the means of production, that sort of thing, but we don't want there to be this institution of political state. When did you first get interested in this subject? What led you to write their book, Chaos Theory? I think it was in junior high when I first started getting interested in what we would call libertarianism with a small L, just understanding the arguments for the free market. Because up till then, I had never really heard someone really challenge the conventional wisdom that to say, oh, if there's some social problem, surely the government can come in and do something to make it better. I had just taken that for granted because that's what it seemed like most people thought. And so it was around junior high where I first was exposed to people who were challenging that view and saying, well, no, a lot of times, you know, government intervention actually makes things worse or maybe is even the source of the problem in the first place. And I just kept reading more and more in that genre, and I realized the people I liked the most were the economists, people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, really solid free market economists making the case for free trade, getting rid of the minimum wage, stuff like that. And then I stumbled upon Murray Rothbard in his book For a New Liberty, and that I think was the first time I had seen someone take that logic and push it to the extreme. So Rothbard was just taking normal sort of libertarian arguments for privatizing schools or, or getting rid of the, the welfare system. And he was just showing that those same arguments show why you'd want to privatize roads and even things like law enforcement and military defense. So at the, at the time, so this would have been in high school, I think when I was reading Rothbard, you know, it, it struck me as really radical. But then over time, I, I just realized that, no, I think this guy makes a lot of sense. And, and he's right. If we don't, if we don't trust the government to have a monopoly on computers or food production, why would we entrust them with police protection or military defense? Because those things are really important too. And so it was uh, Murray Rothbard that really got me into all this. Now, let's move on to some common objections we hear about anarcho-capitalism. I'm going to skip past what I refer to as the fluff, the easy stuff. We're not going to do who would build the roads or how would the post office work. And maybe that's not easy stuff for people that have never heard this before. But I really want to get into the meat, into the issues of justice. You know, how would law and order work in an anarcho-capitalist society? So the first objection I want to tackle is actually the title of an article you've written titled, wouldn't warlords take over? This is the idea that eventually, due to the lack of a central governing authority, that different gangs would emerge, they would amass weaponry, they would gather forces, and they would inevitably just control certain areas, just like you know we see warlords doing in countries like Afghanistan today. So essentially this argument boils down to, you know, there's going to be coercion, there's going to be coercive groups emerging eventually anyway, so we may as well have this one organization that we can all influence and, and you know, have at least a small state to keep us safe from that. So what's your argument against that? Okay, sure. And by the way, I should probably just mention that you and I are just going to be hitting on some of the main issues here, maybe trying to hit things from certain angles. And so the, the way to get the full picture is to go read these articles we discuss and read Rothbard's work and so on. 
I think the first point to make to answer somebody who brings up the warlord objection is to be clear that, look, I am not saying take any group of human beings and as long as there's no political state, they're going to flourish and have a wonderful, peaceful coexistence and they're going to be writing uh, poetry and, and going to school and building rockets to the moon. That's not what I'm saying. The claim is – the anarchist claim – is that for any group of people, just you tell me what their level of morality is, their proclivities to violence, how much they might be divided into certain groups that hate each other, that sort of thing. And then I'm going to say, regardless of those initial conditions, you make things worse. You make it more likely that there's going to be slaughter if you give a certain handful of those people a monopoly over all the guns and, and other weapons and say that they're the ones that get to decide who goes into cages or not. Because that's what it means when you establish a state. Okay, so you know the standard argument for why we should have a government so that we don't have this warlord problem is to just walk down a path and say, well, we can all put, you know, agree that instead of settling things through violence through warlords, why don't we just every four years, let's say, have a have a democratic election, and then we'll have one group that's in charge, and we'll give them all the guns or almost all the guns, so they can beat into submission any any rivals, so that we'll have the rule of law. And we can, you know, most of us are civilized and we can all agree that that's a much better system than just having warlords duke it out. But my point is, if we're civilized enough to have that kind of orderly democratic system where we just peacefully transfer power every four years, well, then our group isn't going to devolve into warlord chaos anyway. All right, that the anarcho capitalism would be peaceful for that group of people as well, because the very kind of people who can realize we shouldn't settle things through violence, instead, we should cast a ballot every four years. They also would patronize defense agencies that would be reputable and that would first try to use diplomacy rather than always just saying, well, we got more guns than that group over there, so let's go blow them up. All right, so if you paint a picture of a society where it wouldn't work by you know, the anarcho-capitalist system that Rothbard described, if you, if you want to say, I can imagine a group of people where that wouldn't work, I agree with you. That's true. There are people where it wouldn't work, but by the same token, having a monopoly state in charge of enforcing law and justice with that same group of people wouldn't work either. And ironically, the way people try to prove to us in quotation marks that anarchism doesn't work is they'll point to areas where states have failed, right? So it, they'll say things like, oh, if you like anarchy, why don't you go to Somalia or why don't you go to Colombia where the drug lords are in charge or things like that. And the, those areas, they're not in anarchy because they don't have an absence of the state because people there read Rothbard and were converted and then tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> They had so-called anarchy there because the states they had before were so vicious and cruel and destructive that the system just broke down. So that's a failure of the state. It's a momentary absence of a political power, not because the people there rejected politics per se, but because the guy in charge was an absolute tyrant. So the idea basically is that, I mean, yeah, if you have a society where people are violent and do form gangs, that might still happen, but... At least that gang isn't, you know, maybe controlling this one coercive monopoly. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah, I, mean, I think what people need to do before they jump into the real hard questions of police uh, enforcement or military defense is first just think through the standard logic. What if someone came along and said, oh, why don't we have the government in charge of food production? And the government is the sole authority in charge of growing enough food and distributing it to people. And just run through all the reasons why that would be a horrible system. That would be just a terrible idea because the quality would suffer, the prices would be really high, and it would give the government way too much power because they would be in charge of who gets food or not. And so you couldn't trust them with that kind of life and death power over people. 
All right. And then you realize, oh, so that's why if you decentralize it, you solve all those problems. There's competition. If people figure out a way to make better food at cheaper prices, they can do that. So you expect prices to be lower, quality to be higher. And then no one group or no one farming organization can starve everyone else into submission because if they do something crazy, there's other people to step in and, and fill the breach. Well, that's all of those arguments are true when it comes to police protection. Right. So the the people who are pointing to isolated examples of warlordism in areas where there's not a strong political state, they're acting as if we can't just every day open the paper and see countless examples of state personnel abusing their authority and killing people or police brutality or people wrongly being imprisoned and sent to the to get the death penalty and so on. So there's it just screams out at us how often every day the state abuses its power, its monopoly of police protection and military defense. Right, all the mate the world wars in history, those are all not the fault of anarchy. Those are all the fault of government monopolies. And so it's it's kind of silly just to point to and say, oh my gosh, there might be warlords. Well, even if that were true, having warlords duke it out is going to not lead to nuclear weapons. One big concern I hear is people have this idea that there's a real danger of turning justice into a commodity. This is the idea that, you know, when companies exist solely to make a profit in the justice system, that they'll just tend to favor the highest bidder or they'll tend to favor whoever makes the majority of their clientele. Like, I mean, let's say you have a neighborhood full of Nazis and there's one Jewish family that lives in town. You know, won't the defense agencies just look the other way at, you know, Nazi harassment of the Jewish family? Because, hey, who cares about this one Jewish family? I have all these Nazis hiring us. So what's your rebuttal to that, to the idea that making justice a commodity can lead to dangerous actions from defense agencies? Okay, well, first, again, I'll just point out that the worst atrocities in human history in terms of one group of people with power discriminating against or even trying to completely implement genocide against are examples of, of states doing that, right? The most obvious example being the Holocaust. So, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't automatically file that, gee, if you really want to make sure that Jewish people are protected, you want to have a strong government. Well, no, the government in Nazi Germany was pretty strong, and look what happened. More generally... Again, the, it's not as if you get rid of the human instinct to want to take money and, and be selfish and put your personal interest above what you know is actually your duty if you're a, a judge, for example. So right now, every day, judges are corrupt and take bribes to look the other way. And the, the question is, okay, which system is more likely to minimize that sort of behavior? So it's not enough just to say I can theoretically imagine if you had a completely private legal system – where all the judges, you know, had to earn their living in a private capacity that, oh, I can I can imagine that some wealthy people might be able to throw some money around and, and get special treatment. Therefore, that system, I veto it. No, that's not enough. You have to say, OK, that's how that system might play out. Now let's consider the state system. And is it true that the rich don't have a different form of justice right now? And, and most people would say, no, that's not true at all. Rich, there is a two-tier justice system, right? Even leftist critics of capitalism right now agree under our current rules that the rich seem to have a whole separate set of laws that apply to them. That you know, white-collar criminals rarely go to prison, whereas the welfare mom who just checks the wrong box on a form or something might have her kids taken away. Okay, so uh, right now we do not have a system of neutral, blind justice that is totally untainted by money. And so the question, as always, is a comparative one, which under which system would you expect there to be less corruption? And so I would argue in a, under a system where there's free open entry and you don't have a monopoly 
provision, that's where corruption is going to be rooted out. Okay, because just very briefly, under my system, the way I'm picturing it, the type of framework I have in mind, people would volunteer, both parties to a dispute would pick a, a mutually agree upon judge. Just like right now, if people want to pick an arbitrator and sort of settle things outside of the formal legal system, one person can't just go to an arbitrator and then have that guy's decision be binding on the other party. No, they both beforehand look at the available options and agree. Okay, like if people are getting divorced or something, they can say, okay, let's go take this to arbitration. Or if a firm, if the management has a problem with an employee and there's a dispute, they might say, well, this is going to take forever if we actually bring a lawsuit. Come on, let's settle this through arbitration. And so they go to reputable firms that have arbitrators, and the way they stay in business, the way they get repeat customers or get new business is they have a reputation that they're pretty fair, that they don't just favor the plaintiff or the defendant, that they actually look at the evidence and try to render a fair uh, opinion in a situation. So, yeah, corruption is always possible, but if there is some judge in a private system that people know, oh, yeah, if there's a case involving a rich person, he always sides with the rich guy, well, then guess what? The next time there's a dispute – between a poor guy and a rich guy, the poor guy's not going to agree to go to that judge. Let's scale back a little bit from some of these bigger questions of warlord violence and all this stuff. And just let's take it back to something really simple. In this kind of anarcho-capitalist society where there is no central governing authority, let's just say some simple crime occurs. And let's say Tom down the street had his TV stolen. He thinks he might know who sold the TV. But you know, who is he going to? How is he resolving this issue? Okay, and again, with all this stuff, I just think the caveat, imagine if uh, somebody in North Korea came to me as an economist and said, the system we have here is horrible, uh, people are starving to death, w- what's your solution? And I would sketch out and say, well, I think you should have private property and, and free entry into agriculture and people can open up grocery stores. And then he says, okay, so if we did that a year from now on Tuesday, how many grocery stores would be on my street and how much would apples cost? Obviously, I don't know what the answer is. I could just sketch a big picture, but clearly I'm on to something when I say you don't want the North Korean government monopolizing food production. Okay, so it's the same thing here. I can, I'm going to try to answer your question and sketch a, a vision of it, but it's not that I know specifically what the details would look like. So it would, I think the first thing to point out is part of the function of having official judicial opinions is that it reassures the community that there is some justice involved there. So if you if you think that somebody down the street steals your TV set, even if you're sure you know who the guy is, you don't want to just go get a bunch of your burly cousins and go beat down his door and take the TV because your neighbors might not know whether you were in the right or not. And so if you really do think it's an open and shut case that, no, that guy took it, well, then you go to you – know, you lodge a formal complaint against the guy and you say, I know you took my TV. Give it back or else I'm going to – lodge a complaint, and then you go to various reputable arbitrators and you say to that guy, let's take our case to one of these people because I know you have my TV and you can defend yourself and I'm going to bring out the evidence in my favor. And so if the guy does just refuses and says, no, I'm not going to see any of those guys, well, then the community can see, all right, the, the, the plaintiff is making a good faith effort. He's listed a bunch of potential arbitrators that we all know have a reputation for fairness. And so now – he can go and have the case tried in absentia, right? He can present his evidence and maybe one of those arbitrators says, yeah, you're right. It sure does look like that guy's guilty. And I think you're, I agree with you. He has your TV. So now if he brings in some burly guys that are provided, not, you know, not his cousins, but guys, it's a professional force and they go in and they have, uh, 
bulletproof jackets on and stuff, but they they just use non-lethal means to go retrieve the television set, and they have a reputation for that. Well, then the public is much more sure that justice has been served. Okay, and so that's the the vision that I'm I'm picturing now. Of course, if the guy who really is innocent and he didn't steal the TV, well, then he's probably going to agree and say, "Yeah, I'll go meet with any of these arbitrators and I'll present my evidence." And so that's the the system I'm seeing. So yes, there are always going to be cases where a guilty person goes free and an innocent person is falsely convicted, but I think that would those cases would be much more minimized under this kind of approach. Now, you speak a lot about the role of insurance companies and how you envision them taking taking over a lot of the roles that we, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong at any point here, but they taking over a lot of the roles that we cede to government right now. You know, you might not see people necessarily hiring defense services or hiring police or investigators or that kind of thing directly, but people will, you probably have insurance of some kind and the insurance companies might do a lot of these things, you know, to sort of protect their clientele. And you know, what you'll hear from that, you know, from a lot of people is, oh, great, this this Murphy guy wants to just turn everything over to insurance companies and then they'll go ahead and list all the terrible things about insurance companies, you know, about how health insurance companies are always trying to cut costs and not really pay for certain things and that sort of thing. So what would, what would I guess, maybe just describe a little more how you see the role of insurance companies and kind of refute what people are saying, how that relates to, you know, all the terrible things we currently think about insurance companies. Okay, sure. So first of all, uh, in terms of just people's everyday experience, let me just point out, this has at least been my experience. It's true. Arguing with health insurance companies is a pain. But I think that's because of so much government involvement in healthcare. Because I've had claims on my car, for example, and that's always fine. You know, I, n- I never have thought, "Geez, I really can't get along with the insurance company when it comes to damage to my car, whether somebody hits me or or someone breaks into my car, whatever it is." So I would just encourage people when they're thinking about how do I feel about insurance companies in the real world, don't just focus on health insurance and notice that that's an area that's the most regulated of all areas when it comes to insurance companies is health insurance. And so that shouldn't be shocking to you that those things might be uh, providing poor customer service. But as far as your question, the reason I picture such a big role for insurance companies is the following, because I'm, I'm imagining a lot of the, the issues that right now the public sort of relies on the state to fix ex post. This would actually, these things would be decided originally before services were rendered. So for example, if you go into a hospital that part of what you're getting as a patient is you're getting a contractual relationship saying, hey, if the doctor screws up and I die on the table or he you know, cuts off the wrong leg or just does something crazy, well then the doctor is going to pay me a million dollars or whatever the, the fee might be or the fine might be. The problem with that sort of arrangement is what if the doctor doesn't have that kind of money? And so even right now in the real world today, we have what's called medical malpractice insurance. You know, any, any doctor or reputable hospital is going to have to have that as a precondition to even working there. And, that's, and so the idea is if they are found guilty of doing something really egregious, then you know that there's that insurance policy in place so the patient victim is going to get paid. And so I just want to generalize that approach and to say, for example, that if an employee is going to go work in a factory somewhere – then the employer might say, okay, one of the conditions of you coming in here and being my employees, I want you to carry an insurance policy with a reputable provider or carrier so that if you know, on our surveillance cameras we see that you go nuts one day and, and start killing your coworkers, then your insurance company comes in and pays their estates 
whatever it is, a million dollars a piece. Okay. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm picturing. They're just generalizing this idea of medical malpractice to say, in general, the kind of things, the kind of damage you might inflict on other people rather than relying after the fact the state to hunt you down and grab you and put you in a cage. And that's, that's the way we deal with that kind of stuff. That first and foremost, I want to make sure the victims get compensated. And so if a precondition for a lot of these periodic or regular interactions is that people have insurance policies like that, that's one way to really ensure that victims get compensated after a crime. And the other benefit is then it's up to the insurance companies to do background checks on these people. Okay, so this part of why I like this approach is it solves some of the apparent problems because it used to be one of the standard objections to an anarchist world or society would be to say, oh, if some guy from out of town comes in and wants to use my grocery store or wants to rent an apartment from me, you know, are we going to expect that every two minutes people are going to do background checks on him to see if he's a criminal or something? And no, you don't have to do that. It's as long as he has a, a policy with a reputable company, then he can go rent a car, he can rent an apartment, or he can buy a house, or he can open a bank account. You know, a lot of things like that dealing with big businesses where they might say, in order for you to be our customer, we want to see some type of insurance like this. And so it's the insurance companies that are the ones that can make sure this guy isn't an axe murderer who just came from another state. I think a lot of people will start to get with you here and they'll listen to you and they'll say, you know, I do see how this could work in a society for most people. You know, people have a disagreement. I can see how they would go to arbitration or, you know, it makes sense to me how people would get insurance and how all that would work. But maybe that would only work for, say, 80, 90 percent of the people, maybe even more. But what about the hardened criminals? You know, what about some of these people that aren't going to care about getting insurance? They're not going to care about any kind of system of justice or reform or anything like that. What about the mass murderers, the rapists, the people with no desire to reform, no remorse whatsoever? How would this type of person be dealt with in an anarcho-capitalist society? Okay. well, first, I think people need to think through what they what they view as the, the causes of crime. And you know, you can list things like the drug war, uh government schools, particularly in inner cities, are just awful. The minimum wage law makes it hard for people with low skills to get hired in the first place. You know, so there's various things that sort of channel um a lot of people into what we call a life of crime, right? That they they join gangs and they end up dealing drugs and and then they go to prison for petty offenses. And then when in prison, they get exposed to really hardened criminals and they learn some tricks or, or awful things happen to them in prison. And that changes them. So when they come out, you know, they're more violent than when they went in. All right. So there's a lot of systematic things right now flowing from government policies that make people far more criminal than they need to be or than they would be. All right. So there's so all of those things would go away if you had an anarcho-capitalist society. So, but that doesn't mean people are are just angels at heart and that everybody would be perfect. Obviously not. So, how do you deal with these rare cases of just true psychopaths or or hardened criminals with no remorse and they are just want to rob banks and what have you? Well, again, it's a it's a comparative analysis. I am not claiming that there would be no serial killers in an anarcho capitalist world, but by the same token, in our present world, with the state having a massive presence and telling us. The police and judges are there to keep us safe. We also have serial killers. Okay, so the question's not uh, will serial killers exist or not. The question is which system would you expect to be more effective in dealing with them and catching them before they kill again? 
And so just look at the incentives right now. Yeah, obviously, if there's a serial killer on the loose and the media is reporting on it, the police in, the, in today's world are under pressure to catch the guy. Right? It's not that the, the chief of police doesn't care. No, he obviously they want to catch the guy. They don't like people getting killed, and it looks embarrassing to them. You know, it's it's bad publicity. The longer this goes on, and the more victims who turn up. But imagine if instead of just being a monopoly police agency or the FBI that gets called in to help on the case, imagine if there are ten competing agencies, and there's different detective agencies, and there's different investigative body, you know, companies that all specialize in catching serial killers. Okay, well then, with that competition, you would expect them all to be better than if just one agency had a monopoly on that. So instead of just the FBI being the main source of where you go to get trained to, in, in forensic analysis and so on and profiling to hunt down serial killers and that everybody knows, oh, yeah, when there's a serial killer, the FBI comes in and kind of takes over the investigation and works with local law. If instead of that, what if there's 10 competing agencies around the country and that they you know have different reputations and track records and so then the local police agencies – can see this this pick of the crop okay so you know things like that i'm I'm just again it's it's not a question of is this going to be zero or not under an anarcho-capitalist system the question is yeah you have a definite social problem and then which type of approach do you think is best going to solve it and i think as a general rule having competition and many people racking their brains trying to figure out is there a better way to do this that that's more likely to hit upon a solution that works better do you see these agencies in some cases, especially with, say, like a high-profile serial killer, do you see them, almost, a lot of these place, companies just going after them for PR purposes, if nothing else? You know, if you're the company that caught this Texas hangman that's hung 40 people, do you see that as kind of being like, hey, we got, we, we're the ones that caught the Texas hangman. We're the ones you want to hire. We're the best guys in town. Is that how you envision some of that stuff? Oh, yeah, exactly. And, again, it's, you know, people... It's, it, I'm not saying that people who work for the FBI don't want to catch serial killers, but the point is there's bureaucratic procedures to get in place and, oh, this is the way you do it. And so and so suppose the FBI is systematically doing something wrong. Well, they have very little ability to even detect that error because there's there's not you know a, a competitive field here. And so you're right. If there's multiple agencies and they – and of course, you know there are private bounty hunters and things like that. I'm not denying it, but I'm saying just elaborating on that and expanding it that – Uh, With more competition, people will even just accidentally stumble upon techniques that work better. And then, yeah, they will get more business that way, and then their rivals will copy those techniques. So for all the reasons that you want to have private entry and entrepreneurship in other areas, all the more so you want to have them in something as important as detecting criminals or catching criminals. Once they get this guy, you know, how do you see the society dealing with hardened criminals like this? Where they just go to some kind of private prison, or how would that work? Mostly, what would happen in a private system is that when somebody had a complaint against somebody, that the arbitrator or the judge—I don't know if they'd call him a judge—would render an opinion and say, "Okay, given my understanding of the law and you know the facts of the case, I think that you know this person is the defendant is guilty. Let's say, and in my opinion." he should pay restitution of whatever, $600,000. And so if the person had insurance, the insurance company would pay it off, and then the insurance company could you know, square up with the, def- with the defendant if that was part of their contract. If there were no insurance, then there would be this outstanding judgment against the person. So in case of a serial killer, the detective agencies or whatever, let's say they, they, th- they think they know who the guy is, and they would bring this information to a judge or a s- person, and they would agree. You know, let's, say the, let's say the evidence is overwhelming and say, yep, 
that's the person. Okay, so now all of the society is notified and realizes this guy is the person that we believe is responsible for, you know, those those 12 people that were found dead over the last two months. And so it's clearly in everybody's right as property owners to say to that guy, hey, get off my property. Okay, so, you know, the mall owner can say, get off here. The people who own the private streets can say, get off my street, right? Apartment complexes and so on. So it's it, it's not like today's world where people just think, oh, there's just these little little sectors, these oases of your house where you can kick people out. But other than that, it's a, it's a free-for-all. No, everything is privately owned in the kind of world I'm imagining. And so if there really is a true social pariah, like a convicted serial killer who's on the run, everybody can say as a, as a blanket rule, you, you're not allowed on my property. And so now what's the, what's the role for private prisons? There could be a few institutions that build very secure physical facilities and they have well-trained staff who know how to deal with violent people, and they announce you know, to the world and say, we are here as an oasis for you if you are a social pariah, if you are literally an outlaw, and that people do not want you on their property, you can come here. We want you here on our property, but you're agreeing to a bunch of rules. For you know, Obviously, we're going to search you when you get here and make sure you don't have any weapons. You're going to be under close uh, surveillance and so forth while you stay here. But you can stay here and we'll make sure that you don't starve to death. We'll provide you with clean facilities and so on. And, and if you have work skills, we'll put you to work, right? We'll allow you to work because we're here as a business that we want you to be here and produce so that you know, we know that's how we make money. That's what, what our function is. And that, I think, would be much more humane, right? So it, it achieves the purpose that we want. It takes those serial killers or you know bank robbers, whatever – and it gets them in these secure facilities where they can't escape. But these places are also humane. There wouldn't be sadistic guards because these places are competing with each other. right? If one place was known to have sadistic guards, well, then the serial killer on the run would go to the place and turn himself in where he didn't. Or if the, you know, the, the detective agents were, if they actually grabbed the guy, you know, they could take him and, and deposit him in one of these places. Okay? And because, again, they, they, they wouldn't be violating his rights because – the people all along the way would say, yeah, I don't want this guy on my street or get this guy off my land. So, th- so that's, that's the twist where I'm coming from it is to say it's not so much that because a judge says so, now all of a sudden some guy is stripped of his ability to be anywhere except inside a cage. That's not really what's happening. Rather, the judge is just announcing, I think this guy is the, is the serial killer. And then people, if they trust that judge's opinion, say, OK, yeah, get off of my land. And so he has no he's kind of funneled into these institutions that you and I would look at and say, oh, that's a prison. Yeah, I think the big concern people have about private prisons that you describe were were kind of they're not necessarily sent there by decree. People just would naturally have to go to some kind of place like this because they become such outlaws because they are the Texas hangman and no one wants the Texas hangman in their neighborhood. That makes sense to me, but people would be concerned that, all right, well, maybe the Texas hangman is in this prison for a few years and, you know, you said he can leave voluntarily, so maybe he just gets the thirst for blood again. He leaves and, you know, maybe these people aren't going to allow him, quote-unquote, on their property, but he'll still be free in the world. He'll still be able to maybe break into someone's house and go back on a killing spree, that kind of thing. So what would you say to that, the idea that this person could still leave voluntarily could still cause havoc somehow okay well it's i i should probably be clear and, and again i i'm just brushing with broad strokes here because it would depend on the exact nature of the legal code and what the property rights were and so forth what he would be free to leave in the sense 
that if some other competing prison institution said, yeah, you can come over here, well, then he could transfer. Okay, but it's not that he could just walk out the front door. You know, it's not like he was going to a restaurant. Because they're going to have agreements with possibly some insurance companies and some legal defense companies and that kind of thing, too. So they're not going to be able to just let him go, you're saying. Yeah, so, I mean, mean, just if you want to say, well, how would that happen? Well, I mean, because if if you're a land developer and you're building a bunch of apartments or you're building some houses that you're going to sell – and then, you know, a, a company comes in and says, oh, I want to buy this plot of land and, and make a prison. I mean, you're going to want to make sure, OK, well, what are your policies going to be? It, it can't be that, oh, yeah, if an axe murderer comes in, he can just hang out and then just walk out the front door when he's sick of the place because then no one's going to want to buy the houses that are in the same vicinity. Right. That'll cr- crush their market value. OK, so I'm saying these things would all be without knowing the exact history of how this anarchist world developed. I can't be more specific than that, but clearly a prison that doesn't have such a policy is going to be destroying the property values in the vicinity. And so that's, that's going to be a silly policy to have. They're going to have to say, if you come in here, you know, you're agreeing that you're only allowed to leave under certain circumstances. If we, you know, we're transporting you to some rival institution. So it's, it's true. If you come in here, you're not signing your life away. We can't hold you forever, but you're not allowed just to walk out the door that you, there's certain procedures you have to go through if you're going to get transferred to a different facility. So in general, I think the way you would get paroled, if you will, is, well, there's two things. One is if the judgment against you is just a monetary one, well, then maybe you have to go in this, this area and just work it off. And then that's how you get free is that once that judgment is, is paid off, well, then now, you know, you're back to being a a legal person with, with no uh, outstanding judgment against you. And so that's one method. And the other thing, too, is a lot of people, I believe, would just defer to the insurance companies and say, yeah, you can come and rent an apartment for me or work for me or, or live in, in this uh, housing air development as long as you have a policy with one of these companies. And so it would be up to them to look at someone and maybe somebody – you know, if a guy came home and found his wife in bed with his buddy and shot them both and he was drunk, you know, that's a different kind of – he's a murderer, but that's a different kind of crime than a serial killer. And so maybe if that guy spends – several years in a facility and there is genuine rehabilitation you know that that would be in the interest of everybody involved to get these people back to being fully productive members of society and then he convinces you know so some insurance company comes and looks at his record and and they think yeah that was a one-time deal and he's given up drinking and uh we really don't think he's a threat well then they would be willing to issue him a policy and they would be on the hook if he ever kills again well then they have to pay a million dollars or whatever it is to the victim or the you know the the estate of the victim okay so uh, again, I'm just throwing out big picture ideas here, but I'm trying to get people to see that a lot of the things that we that happen right now that, yeah, someone can get convicted of a crime, but then there is a chance of them getting out if they really if we really think they're reformed. You know, those sorts of elements would be there. It's just there would be competition and there would be accountability that the, the, if the insurance company picks wrongly and they think the guy's rehabilitated, he goes out and kills again. Well, now that insurance company, at the very least, is going to be paying millions of dollars. So they're not going to flippantly say, yeah, this guy's fine. Let him back on the streets because they're on the hook now. Whereas in the present system, if the government penal system you know, paroles somebody, he goes and kills again. It's not like the government gets fined a million dollars. That doesn't happen. <laughs> And so, so basically, there'd be a lot more case by case analysis of specific people, specific situations, as opposed to you commit X crime, and then we just look in the book and we see that the punishment is X, and that's just what happened. To get into another big one, you know, let's say people even even agree with everything you've said to this point. You know, I, I totally get how this anarcho-capitalist society would work. I get how we could take care of the criminals and all of that. But 
you know, unless the entire world becomes an anarcho-capitalist kind of paradise, there are still going to be states, there are still going to be tyrannical governments out there. So how would these kind of ANCAP societies, maybe if we just have pockets of anarcho-capitalism somewhere, how would those societies deal with outside threats? Like, say, a tyrannical government not too far off that says, hey, these guys, they're free here, I can just go take over their land. So how would anarcho-capitalist society deal with outside tyrannical threats? Okay, well, the claim is not, oh, if just 15 guys get together and say, hey, we've all read Rothbard, we're declaring our own little utopia. I'm not saying they would therefore magically be invincible and that foreign governments' bombs would bounce off them. That's obviously not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is for a given group of people, regardless of their numbers or how smart they are or how wealthy they are, they can better defend themselves if they organize the defense through voluntary methods as opposed to just some small group of those people imposing their will on everybody else and taxing them and saying, no, no, we're in charge of defense. We're going to take care of it because if they're wrong, well, then there goes the whole system. All right. So it's and again, empirically, yeah, you can imagine, oh, if there's some small little band of anarchists, they're going to get wiped out. But by the same token, if there's some small little state somewhere, it can easily be invaded. And we see that all throughout history and we see it every day that smaller governments get invaded by armies from bigger governments. Okay, So the question is always a relative one. And I think there's plenty of evidence that government militaries are extremely wasteful when it comes to spending money and that they actually don't do a good job in providing actual military defense. And so other things equal, I would say, yeah, a a small society of anarcho-capitalists would be able to mount a very effective defense. Because remember, they're their goal would not be to take over the world. They would just need to provide sufficient defense so that any potential invader would think, eh, that's not going to be worth it. Yeah, I, we could take over that little group of people there, but they're going to inflict such heavy casualties on our forces. It's really not worth it. And the other thing, too, is it would be difficult to conquer a region that was truly anarcho-capitalist in its organization because there's no central government that you just need to take over. right? So if somebody wants to take over the United States right now, all they really have to do is capture control. You know, they have to defeat, get the U.S. military to surrender, and then get the president to, you know, formally agree that okay, everybody, um, I hate to have this press release, but you know, we're surrendering to the Chinese or whatever, <laughs> right? But there would be no such person with the authority to surrender in a region of anarcho-capitalists. Okay, it would, it would, it would just be like, you know, you'd have to conquer from neighborhood to neighborhood. So it would just be a much more daunting task. So for all those reasons, it's not that I'm saying. They would be invulnerable, but I'm saying hold all of the attributes constant, and it's much better to have a total defense effort provided by competing voluntary institutions or volunteers rather than just having one group get a monopoly on the operation. You know, one thing I hear a lot from other libertarians, from even other people who completely agree with the concepts of anarcho-capitalism, they'll say something like, I agree with this concept in theory, but in practice, our society is just not ready for it, you know? So, you know, I guess, what are your thoughts on just briefly on how getting from here to there? You know, why don't we already have anarcho-capitalism if it's so great? And what sort of philosophy do you think that the everyday man needs to adopt in order to kind of, I guess, see a move towards that sort of system? Well, that's a great question. And I definitely agree with that, that of all the, the objections you've raised, The one to me that is most poignant and correct is to say, well, wait a minute, if we had that system right now somehow magically, 
it would fall apart because most people would not believe in it. And so, and that is true. So that that is the threat. You know, if I'm picturing a group of people organizing the kind of social structure that I'm imagining, to me, the, the danger is not that oh, gee, maybe some foreign government is going to send their army in and conquer these people. No, the the danger is the people internally would just still believe in the state and still think that, well, no, if there's some outcome here that I don't like through voluntary means, well, then I'm just going to, if I can get enough people to agree with me, we're just going to impose what we think the right outcome is through force, which is what political solutions and quotation marks are. And that's also why then that dovetails with what I'm doing with my career. You know, To me, the the thing that I need to do right now is try to convince as many people as possible of this vision that I'm painting, right? That Because the only, because if we ever could get there, the way, only way it would last is if a sufficient number of people understood how it worked. I mean, not down to the finest detail, but just at least endorsed and believed in the, the principle of of liberty and to say that, well, no, people have their private property. And if you don't like something, you don't just get to take people's property or force them to do things they don't want to do. You have to convince them to do it voluntarily. And if, if not enough people believe that, well, then, yeah, free society is going to fall apart. And so how do you get there? is you convince enough people, more and more people, to want to live in a free society. And up, you know, right now, yeah, it seems like it's a, a pipe dream and it's more of a hypothetical thing, but ultimately that's what it would take to get there. That's what would make it politically feasible or make it practical, is if enough people agreed, that would be preferable to the current world. And then it would just sort of happen almost spontaneously if enough people believe that. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's why what we try to do at our website, what I try to do with this show is to focus on ideas, focus on principles, focus on philosophy, because if we don't have that base, then, you know, we're not going to change anything because I think a lot of us were in a stage, at least, you know, a lot of new libertarians or, you know, people like me that have only gotten really active in the last five, six years or so used to really have everything hinged on, all right, we got to, you know, we just got to go vote for Ron Paul and that's how we're going to make everything better. And maybe that would make some things better. Better, I don't know, but at the end of the day, if we don't have a large amount of the populace agreeing with our philosophy, agreeing with principles, it's really not going to get us anywhere. And you know, one more thing, I just want to touch on before I let you go: like, how much of your support for this concept of anarcho-capitalism, how much of it comes from a philosophy that you hold, you know, towards how we should act towards our fellow man, and how much of it is simply the economics of it? This would actually literally just work better. Because, I mean, you could still have voluntary associations like many Amish communities do. They voluntarily have this community and they form a commune, and that's in many ways could be a voluntary system that might spring forward in a, you know, quote-unquote free society we, of course, wouldn't call that capitalism if they're, if they're, you know, have a commune. So, I mean, would that kind of thing be sort of, I guess, morally permissible to you if, if everybody's literally like in agreement for it? Or, you know, do you really just push the capitalism aspect because that is the more efficient method as well? I mean, how do you see all that tying in? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and you, you did, there's a couple of things going on there. So just on the, the last point you brought up, I guess I should be clear when I say capitalism, I, I mean just more generally a system of private property. And that, in theory, could include there could be a, a group of people who collectively own a bunch of land. And then within there, they could implement what you know, they might even call it communism if they want to. But as long as you know, the, the, the broader community has a system of private property where you know, people know what the property titles are, it's just people – implementing that, well, then that would be part of, of what I'm picturing, or that would certainly be a possibility if enough people wanted to live that way. 
as far as the interaction between philosophy and economics, I would like to tell you that, oh yeah, just back when I was first exposed to the ideas of voluntarism and political liberty, that I just realized, you know, it would be immoral to use violence or the threat of force to to get people to do things against their will. And so that's what I'm committed to, a voluntary society come hell or high water, regardless, but that's not how it happened. What made me personally come around was that I realized this sort of system that Rothbard was sketching out in For a New Liberty, the more I studied economics and history, the more I came to think that, oh, actually, you know, that, that would be a, a pleasant place to live, not just a moral place to live, right? So my own philosophical and, and moral views have sort of evolved along with that as I realized that it's, it's possible to be fully committed to voluntary relations and that that's not opening you up to being invaded or, or just it's not a suicide pact. It's more that your study of the economics has kind of convinced you that, you know, the, the philosophy that you have is actually feasible in, in the real world, I guess. There's nothing magical about my philosophy. I mean, I think it's what most normal people believe. I mean, most people would say, oh, yeah, as a general rule, you don't take people's stuff. That's theft. As a general rule, you know, you don't force people to go fight or, you know, you, you can't grab their body and go make them do things they don't want to because that's slavery or, or, or that's kidnapping. But they think, oh, but in, in certain circumstances, the government is allowed to do all those things because otherwise, you know, we, we wouldn't have prisons and there'd be criminals running around or, or our kids wouldn't know how to read if we didn't force them to go to school and that would be awful or the foreign countries would invade us if we didn't have a draft. So everybody is a general default agrees in voluntarism and, and personal liberty. It's just they think that there are all these awful consequences that would flow from strictly applying them in a, in a sort of extreme sense. And it's through my study of economics that I realized, no, those fears are actually unfounded. In fact, it's because of violations of those principles that we are vulnerable to all these horrible things you're worried about. Bob Murphy, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to come out and address all these objections and really, you know, further explain these ideas to people. I know these, the kind of stuff we're discussing are the kinds of conversations I have online almost every day. So that's why I wanted to do this show and get a lot of it out there. The least I can do for you taking the time out here is uh, to allow you to take the chance to plug anything you've got going on. How can people connect with you? And if you'd like, you know, feel free to touch on the Krugman debate. That's something I've, I've been pulling for for a long time. So let everybody know what that is and any other things you got going going on and ways people can contact you. Okay, sure. So my personal website is consultingbyrpm.com, and you can go there, and, and there's all sorts of links if you go to the blog section of it along the left where you can see things like the Krugman debate. Another main website to send you to is academy.mises.org, where I frequently teach online classes for the Mises Institute, and I'm, I'm currently teaching one right now, and people can still sign up if they want to catch up. Uh, as far as the Krugman debate, yeah, that's I, I made some funny videos, I'd like to think, and I, I had this challenge for Keynesian economist Paul Krugman where people were pledging money where if he ever debated me on business cycle theory, then this pot of money with the people's credit cards at that point would get would get dinged and the money would go to a food bank in New York City. So the the height of it that I saw, it had, got, it had broken $100,000, was pledged. And then, but but Krugman has publicly said that he's not gonna not gonna debate me. Somebody called him up when he was on a on a talk show promoting his book, and the guy said, "Hey, what about this Bob Murphy guy? You gonna debate him and send that money to the food bank?" And and Krugman kind of said, "Ah, oh, no, this isn't gonna be settled by sound bites. This is serious economic stuff. I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna deal with that clown." 
So that's, oh, I didn't realize that. So he's actually said he will, under any circumstances, will not do this debate, even if you get a million dollars, five million dollars, ten million dollars yeah. in there to, for homeless or yeah. for you know hungry yeah. people. Yeah, you go to I think it's KrugmanDebate dot com and you you look at the video section. I made a YouTube of that when he when he on the air announced that yeah he wasn't going to ever debate me. Robert Murphy, thanks so much again for coming on the show today, and keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Take care. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty, and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday, we have our longest-running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view, along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Robert Murphy. I tried to cover a lot of the common objections I hear regarding anarcho-capitalism. I got a lot of suggestions from my good friends over at The Daily Paul, some people on our Facebook, some people that emailed me to put together this interview with Robert Murphy to try to go over these objections to the ideas of anarcho-capitalism. And, you know, I don't try to spend too much time promoting a specific system. I've had a lot of guests on which have different ideas of how society could function, of how people could organize without a coercive force. You know, we had our guest Shane Whistler way back in episode two, who promotes this idea of kind of a private property city state where 
Adjacent property owners all come together, decide to form a voluntary government that takes care of police, takes care of courts, and that kind of thing. We had Fred Foldvery on recently, and he talks about his work on public goods and private communities, how even in today's society, we have places like Disney World that essentially is one large private community. Of course, they still are you know, beholden to certain laws of the United States, but they're basically a large private community, and they provide all sorts of public services, transportation, they have their own police and things like that. That's another way people could and do organize societies without coercion and without physical aggression. And of course, another prominent way is this method, this system of anarcho-capitalism. It's one you hear a lot. And a lot of people out there think, I am an anarcho-capitalist. That is what I am. And that's they probably think that because they see me posting stuff from other people that associate with anarcho-capitalism, and they see me talking about a lot of these ideas. But you know, I'm not necessarily an anarcho-capitalist per se. What I try to focus on is the philosophy and the principles behind this thing. I mean, even Bob Murphy admitted that, you know, if people want to privately own some things, own property, and voluntarily put it into sort of a communal system, you know, that still is falls under anarchy. I don't know if I would call it capitalism, but it still fits within the philosophy of individual liberty, the philosophy of natural rights, the fact that no man has greater rights than any other man. By virtue of our being men, by virtue of our being created equal, whether you think that's by a creator or by evolving from the primordial ooze, or maybe you think that the ancient aliens came and and genetically modified us. Whatever it is, whatever your theory about how we got here is, you can still agree completely with natural rights. It's completely consistent with any theory about how humans came to be. And that's why I tend to focus on the philosophy, but I do think it is important for our discussions about liberty, how societies could function, how societies could form in order to kind of combat all the objections we will hear from non-libertarians who say, you know, I love your little utopian idea of, of liberty. It sounds great, but look, there's a real world here. We need this government. We need this coercive force to take care of everything for us. And if you don't like it, well, too bad, because that's just the way it is. Well, I don't believe that things are just the way they are. The world is constantly changing. 200 years ago, slavery was commonly accepted all throughout the world. And of course, there are pockets of slavery that go on in the world. But the vast majority of people find slavery abhorrent. And that's why it has largely been eradicated from the globe. And this is how I see the ideas of liberty. This is why I'm very confident that when enough people start to get interested in these ideas and start to really look at them, we can change the world. I don't know if my podcast will change the world or if whatever you're doing, and I encourage you guys to do your own podcast, do your own videos, anything, get out there, push these conversations along, because guess what? One person at a time, the whole world is comprised of individuals. So if you change enough individuals, you do change the whole world. And with the technology we have today, with the internet, with social media which we hope you'll come and participate with us on over at Facebook. You know I'm going to get my social media plugs in, guys. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google+. Email me if you have an idea, a suggestion for a guest, anything like that. Mark, M-A-R-C at LionsofLiberty.com. We just want you to keep coming back, joining the conversation, and keep these ideas going because, guys, I don't care what the detractors say. I'm going to spend my life doing some things that I think are important. And I truly do believe, even if it's in a very small way, that each of us does have the power to change the world. And with that, I leave you with my message that I always leave you with, and that is to please, please, oh, please live long.
and live free.